just by doing something, you will start to feel better about your situation. And that's true of people who have to get back to friendly forces. Even when I've been doing like telly stuff in Tundra and places that are really austere, each time I take a step, I know that I'm one meter closer to a warm campfire and a bit of boiling water than I was a second ago. And the next step, I'm two meters closer. And that quickly becomes kilometers. And then I see a little patch of land that I know I can build a shelter in. So that's how I practically employ it survival-wise in work-related stuff. By doing a bit of work on whatever task you've chosen, you are controlling your environment. That gaining of a sense of control is absolutely pivotal to this because what psychologists have found in the past is that hardship in itself, so a difficult situation in and of itself, is not enough to kill our hope of a successful outcome. You just heard the voice of John Hudson, military survival expert, broadcaster, public speaker, and author of the best-selling book, How to Survive. In this episode, you will learn how to not only survive, but thrive. And not just in extreme situations, but in everyday life. From the man who wrote the survival manual for the UK military. If you want to learn the top tips, hacks and habits on how to survive in any situation from the best in the business, then stick around as we learn how to survive. Welcome to the show everyone. My name is Ali West and since 2008, I've been working in the health and fitness industry. In the space of just under 10 years, I went from being a glorified treadmill cleaner to the owner of my own 9,000 square foot gym in Nottingham in the United Kingdom plus helping thousands of people, both offline and online, to improve their health and well-being. Since 2015, I've been on my own journey of self-discovery, learning how to improve, optimize, and master my mental, physical, and spiritual health on the deepest levels. And now I want to help you do the same by sharing my own wisdom and the wisdom of some of the brightest minds in health, fitness, nutrition, biohacking and spirituality so you can become optimally healthy in your mind, body and spirit. If you're ready, then let the show begin. Hello and welcome to the Kinetic Fitness Show, where we inspire you to live a longer, healthier, happy and more joyful life. We cover everything you need to know to be optimally healthy in your mind, body and spirit. Are you ready to become the ultimate version of yourself? Well, let's dive into another episode with your host and guide by your side, Allie West. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 103 of the Kinetic Fitness Show podcast. My name is Ali West. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join me on today's episode. I have an epic episode lined up for you today with a man who knows survival inside out. We know at the moment that a lot of people are struggling. We have the pandemic, there's a lot of stress. People are working from home, homeschooling their kids and are literally just trying to survive day to day, week to week. I understand this, my guest today understands this. So in this episode, we want to help you survive day to day, but not just survive, thrive so you can be optimally healthy, you can improve your health and well-being, and you can accomplish all the tasks that you have on your plate at the moment in an effective manner, and you're not going to get stressed out by it. My guest today, John Hudson, is a survival expert. For 20 years, he has trained the trainers in the UK military, and he even wrote the survival manual for the UK military. 
So in my eyes, there's no better person to teach us how to survive, survival skills, and survival psychology. And in this episode, that is what my guest today is going to do. I'm not going to waste too much time. I'm going to introduce my guest, tell you a little bit about him, and then we're going to get stuck straight into today's episode. And I'll also give you a few key takeaways that you will get from today's episode, and then we will dive right in. My guest today is John Hudson. John is a survival instructor, broadcaster, writer, public speaker, and training consultant whose specialist work takes him to some of the most remote and extreme environments in the world. Based in Cornwall in the UK, John is the British military's chief survival, evasion, resistance and extraction instructor and has been a resident survival expert on two series of the Discovery Channel's primetime show Survive That, aka Dude You're Screwed in the USA, putting his own resilience to the test on camera in front of millions of people. Having created the UK military survival manual, John's first book, How to Survive, Lessons for Everyday Life from the Extreme World shows us how strategies for life or death situations can help us excel in our everyday lives. So what will you learn in today's episode and what are some of the key takeaways that you will get today? Well firstly you will learn all about John's story and his 20 years of experience in military survival training. John also goes into the psychology and mindset of survival. You will learn how to not panic and keep yourself in a rest and digest state rather than a flight or fight state when in a survival situation or just in everyday life when you're under pressure or under stress. You'll also learn why repetition and habitual practices are so important for surviving. You'll learn about John's PLAN acronym for surviving in the wilderness but also at home, in the office or in the boardroom. I also share my mini survival story of getting stranded halfway up a cliff with my wife. John explains why trusting your gut can get you killed. John also shares his favorite survival stories from himself and from other people as well. You'll also learn why you should only focus on tasks that are within your control, plus much, much more. And I know that you will love this episode. So if you do love this episode and you enjoy it, please do share it with your friends, family, colleagues, and loved ones. Grab a screenshot, post it to your social media, tell people about it. And I will also share it with my friends and followers as well if you tag me in it on Instagram. My handle on Instagram is Ali West Coach, and John's is John Hudson Survival. So make sure you tag us in and we will share it as well. That's it. Without any further ado, let's get stuck into today's episode. This is episode 103 of the Kinetic Fitness Show podcast with John Hudson. Let's do it. Hey, John. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you doing today, mate? I'm all right. Thanks very much for the invite, Ali. Looking forward to chatting. Excellent, excellent. I'm really looking forward to this one. And this is a topic that I'm really passionate about, really interested in. So I can't wait to pick your brain on all things survival and mental toughness. But before we do that, could you just share your story with the listeners, a little bit of a brief backstory so we can learn more about who you are and what you do, and then we'll go from there. No, no worries, Ali. So um, for the, the many out there who haven't heard of me before, I'm John Hudson. My, my job is to teach survival to military survival instructors. I, I work at um, the Defence Survival School, and my job is instructor training. Uh, what that means is I teach uh, the guys and girls who are going to teach the other guys and girls who are going to go into harm's way what to do if they find themselves in a sticky situation. And that, that could be um, and that could be absolutely anywhere in the world. If you imagine like modern 
forces and where they go. They could be flying somewhere and the aircraft could have a problem. They could be out on the ground and they could get separated. They could be at sea, you know, aircraft ditching the sea. So it's on land at sea, Arctic desert jungle. Um, and importantly, the bit that I'm interested in, I know we, we are, Ali, is that all of that is built on a foundation of the psychology of maintaining your sort of positive mental outlook and the, the sort of the, the will to get to the finish line, that kind of stuff. So that's my job. And I got into it because I used to fly helicopters in the Royal Air Force. And survival training, as you'd probably imagine, is a part of that training. Um, and when we were doing it, it, it's not everyone's cup of tea, I'll tell you now, because what we're doing is like inoculating people to hardship, physical hardship. And not everyone wants to do that. But um, I really enjoyed it. I've got a kind of outdoorsy upbringing. And survival was just a, a mega way to learn more skills so I could take less with me when I went mooching. So I was one of the few people who volunteered to do more. Hence, I ended up being an instructor. And yeah, I've been doing it now full time for over 20 years. It was, uh, what, last month I did my instructor's course, 20 years ago last month. Um, so yeah, I've been at it for a while, mate. That's me. The more you look into it, the more interested you get, the more you find there is to unpick. And I'm still really enjoying learning more about each little facet. You know, we, we get guest speakers to talk to our guys who literally pay their mortgage looking at one facet of what we do and that bit could be like a couple of um a couple of minutes worth of chat and we've got a load of other stuff to cover because it's so wide ranging so each one like like so much of this stuff you can drill right into it and i yeah it still excites me mate i love it love it let's start with the mental stuff then because that's an area that as you said we're both passionate about and i'm just curious to know why you enjoyed the survival element of the training so much and the you could say mental toughness side of things because I have friends and people that I know that have done military survival training and a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them have said it's the toughest thing they've done. They hated every moment of it, but you really were the opposite to that. So I'm just curious as to why that was and why you enjoyed that mental challenging side and the mental toughness side of it so much and you chose to go down the path that you've gone down with your career? I, it's a good question. I, I reckon to answer it, it'll take a minute to kind of explain what survival training in the military is actually like. Um, so it's, it's proper sort of scientifically unpacked and, and uh, investigated education. What you see sometimes on TV, and I'm as guilty of that as a few other people have been, like put myself out there on the telly, what you see on TV isn't the same as military survival training. What you see on telly tends to be, um, tends to be TV, isn't it? To get the viewers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's entertainment, mate. And it, it tends to be bushcraft rather than survival. So um, the bushcrafty stuff is people who have chosen to walk into the woods, normally with like lovely bits of kit that they, they've nurtured, probably kind of, um, some of it fairly old-fashioned kit that kind of rekindle that connection with nature, which is awesome, and we encourage our instructors to to practice. But military survival is the opposite. It's like um, it's the equivalent of having to live in a field after your car's crashed. You know, so it's you've had a dynamic, probably life-threatening event happen, and this is what you have to do afterwards in order to stay alive and get rescued. And the guys and girls who come on the courses have chosen the career path of being a military aviator or some kind of, um, you know, infantry type role because they want to do that. And what we're teaching them is an insurance and policy for their very, very worst day in their life, what to do next so they don't die and they can get back to the family. And um, so it's kind of, it's from 
necessity. Um, they're not there because they want to be there. They're there because they have to, to learn the skills. So they're, they're motivated. Um, they won't necessarily enjoy it, some of the guys, because they perhaps haven't done that much outdoorsy stuff. You know, you can get to quite a long way up the pyramid of, of you know, flying really pointy jets without having done much camping. You know, you, you, that is feasible that you could get to that point, especially if you're from like maybe the Navy or, or the Royal Air Force rather than an Army soldier. So these guys and girls may not have done that much outdoorsy stuff other than what they absolutely have to do to go through like basic fundamental training. Now, my difference, I suppose, Ali, to answer the question was when I was growing up, I grew up in a kind of rural community. Our holidays used to be walking holidays in the Yorkshire Dales or that kind of like North Yorkshire Moors, like you mentioned a minute ago before we started recording. So I used to go out walking and you know what the weather's like up in the North England. It just hoses you down. Doesn't it? If it's sunny, it's going to rain later. So I was used to being, I was used to being out in boggy, terrain with like the wind and the rain lashing me from an early age but everyone in my family was doing it so we just enjoyed it and got on with it and I wasn't I've never had really beach holidays because of that and this is the science part of education you um you inoculate yourself to hardship gradually and for me it was something that I'd done younger so when I got first sort of dropped in at the deep end doing the survival stuff it was a bit more familiar for me than some of the people who hadn't done that much Equally true, though, mate, there are people who've done quite a lot and just don't like it. You know, they don't. It's just not for everyone, is it, this sort of thing? Um, so I was lucky. I had a little bit of a head start and my, my kind of outlook towards it was that kind of thing. I associated it with fun. So I wanted to learn more. Um, the science now, it's not like telly because you're not just like ditched with nothing and supposed to make it up as you go along. It's an educational ladder that the guys and girls go up. And we don't push them off the top board. You know, when they get to the point where they're getting dropped off by the helicopter at night with dogs and things chasing them, they're stepping off onto something that is familiar because they've been trained to do it. And they're just executing the skills and, and doing the drills so that they've practiced it and it's embedding it in their uh, hippocampus. So it's like a, a, an autobiographical memory that they can then open the package of if the worst happens in future. So it's scientifically approached education, whereas the telly stuff that I've done, legitimately you're just thrown off in the deep end and crack on lofty. And some of it, as you know, because it's telly, it can be a little bit tweaked and adjusted. So there is the editing process and all that kind of stuff, whereas military survival, you're in it. Yeah, it makes sense. So they're almost making those habitual practices so that if the worst case scenario does happen, they're ready to rock and they know exactly what to do. Mate, exactly. And you've hit the nail on the head with the habitual practices things. We are trying to encode behaviours so that if the worst happens, they're reflexive actions rather than deep memories that they have to draw forward. You know, they just know what to do. And the key for that with all the stuff we do is that there's a cadence where it has to be repeated in their career life cycle. So you can't just do it fire and forget. You have to have that training updated and it is a pathway. So we'll start with, um, so the stuff you'll see on the TV, like the, the living off the land stuff, that's our step one. What we do on top of that is more austere and extreme environments. And then, um, akin to a kind of an aircraft emergency, the hardest place in the world to survive, which most most Brits may know, but a lot of uh, your foreign viewers may not be aware of, especially if they live in like a continental location. The hardest environment to survive in isn't the Arctic or the desert or the jungle. We do take the guys and girls there. It's the sea. Because if you haven't got the right kit, you will die. You know, you, you, there's no way out of that. So cold water will kill you and it will probably kill you in a few hours rather than a few days. So we, we do drill that in. So that is repeated really frequently. If the guys and girls are flying over the water a lot, they have to go through the right processes in the cockpit every time they get out and they have to know how to um, open up the life rafts and inflate the life preservers and all that kind of good stuff in the correct sequence so that they get out of the threatening environment and into a little habitat before they get rescued. So yeah, there's a lot of 
there's a lot of drilled stuff that is habituated, mate. That is that is bang on the nail, yeah. Yeah, and from a mental and psychological perspective, what kind of carryover does this training have into a real life situation? I'm assuming there is a good deal of carryover, but how important and how much of an impact does this training have? Because it's very different doing it in a training environment to doing it in a real life environment, particularly if they're in a war zone, for example. So I just wondered what kind of carryover there is. Has there been tests and, and studies done into this kind of stuff to see how the, the training impacts real life situations? Yeah, that's that's a good way of looking at it. So the bits that are the highest risk to life, so the bits that would require an immediate response that are, are encoded by re- repetition of behavior, that stuff has been proven time and again to be a lifesaver. You know, people get out of burning things um, with not necessarily always with the right stuff because in that heat of the moment it, and depending on the severity of the threat it's often possible to kind of maybe leave an item of equipment that's tucked away somewhere behind so we encourage them to to prepare and plan before that and put the things they really need on the person and so that that's hugely successful and some of those sequences are automated as you'd imagine you know in, in fast jet aircraft if if something went bang you don't have to rely on someone pulling a yellow handle all the time there are other sequences that can initiate that that punch out um, when it comes to the bits on the ground later, you've normally had a, a maybe a couple of seconds max to sort of think about things and, and sort of rationalise what's going on. If you hadn't have had the training, you would be dazed and bewildered. So when you see people um, evacuating an aircraft from like a, a, an emergency like a civilian airfield, so a big airliner maybe, next time you watch any of that footage, mate, just have a look at what the people are doing. And that's the difference between like thorough training and a quick brief. So you get a quick brief from the back of your seat when you go flying, uh, maybe a cartoon even, and then the host, host um, or the, the, what do you call them, the, the, the steward or the stewardess guy will tell you what you're supposed to do. When that's happening, have a look around and see how many people are paying attention. So that's start 10. No, they're not. And then when you watch the actual aircraft get evacuated on the airfield, for whatever reason, they're going down the slides, how many of them have taken the shoes off? How many of them are carrying bags behind them? How many of them these days, and this is probably why we're seeing it, are walking about 10 metres then turning around and filming it? You know, you've got thousands of litres of high-octane fuel that's potentially too hot and you're going to film it. So you're getting inappropriate responses from those who haven't been trained, whereas when a military aircraft um, has an an, an incident, the crew know what to do because they they brief it and and train it all the time and they're straight out. You know, if that's that's the right answer to the problem set. So it's proven the repetition in that has a huge um, benefit to, to saving life. When it comes down to the survival bits, um, I mean, it's a lot of the stories we won't be able to discuss on the on the sort of the YouTube platform. But it's been proven that with the right training and even just even just the little seed of a bit of knowledge, people can associate these priorities and make the right choices to avoid ending up in the wrong hands and to get back to their families. It's really really potent stuff, and that's where the psychological bit crosses over. And that's the, another kind of fundamental difference between like TD bushcraft and, and military survival. Like, the bushcrafty stuff's amazing, and it's intimate knowledge of a local landscape. But the people that we train, they have to know uh, like a skeleton key for the world. We have to teach them a way of unzipping that potential in each area they may end up in. And that's just simply by priori- prioritizing what's going to kill them first, and by giving them that like mental checklist that they keep whirring through. They will do the right things, be it land, sea, Arctic, desert, jungle. And that's where the training really kicks in. Because once you know a few little key nuggets like that, 
you can then apply that to absolutely anything. So businesses, like interpersonal relationships, moments of hardship for whatever reason, especially at the moment with like the lockdown putting people's sort of heads down a little bit, you can really apply that psychological element to absolutely anything. And that's the bit which um, I really, really am fascinated by because I've been doing it quite a while now. I've, I've started to look deeper into that realm rather than, you know, I, I love building igloos and making dens in the jungle and lighting fires and stuff. It's awesome. But I'm really fascinated by the sort of the head side of it. Yeah, excellent. We'll come on to those priorities in, in just a few moments. But before we do that, I just wanted to touch on something you mentioned briefly earlier, which is the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems and this is something that we've touched briefly on before in other podcasts but i just want you to explain to the guys listening in the difference between the two and how these two systems kick in particularly in a survival system and how maybe we can get one working better than the other yeah certainly and it it doesn't um sort of knit in with what we spoke about a moment ago so the very, very quick version of why is that we are still like version 1.0 Homo sapiens. We've not had any hardware updates for, well, they estimate between 150,000 years and maybe even a little bit longer. There was a skeleton found in Morocco uh, about two years ago that predates that. So 300,000 years ago in sort of North Africa, flint tools, remnants of fire. If you were to go back in time and, and visit that person, they would look something like a modern day human, you know, very, very, very similar, including what they've got upstairs. So the computer that's driving the machine is the same. And, you know, that's a phenomenally long time, 300,000. If you go to the like closer estimates of 150,000 years, it's a long time for a computer to run the same software. And it's like running on Windows 98 now, isn't it? (laughs) It's exactly that. And But when you think about it, it was set up for the problems of 1998. So you weren't getting daily news with emails. You weren't having to watch high-speed videos. There wasn't lots of streaming content. You were dealing with a few bits of data and maybe you had like a fancy app to do some science applications to a calculator. Now, I'm over, oversimplifying it, but it's the same kind of analogy, mate. So um, the sympathetic autonomic nervous system is what that computer is hardwired to do when it encounters a threat. Now, if you think 150,000 years is this long, the threats during the majority of that software's lifetime have been probably four-legged apex predators and um, operating in a kind of savannah environment in the, the, the often quote, like the Great Rift area of Africa. I've been lucky enough to go. It's beautiful. Is that like Ethiopia in those areas? Yeah. Sort of, if you work up from Tanzania up through that eastern seaboard-ish part of the continent, it's exactly that area, mate. So you've got a uh, large game, you've got antelopes, you've got lovely sort of picturesque acacia trees, that green tree on the stick that you see with the yellow grass underneath. And our ancestors and our brains have been programmed and adapted by the evolutionary software engineers to be fine-tuned for a walking pace, hunter-gatherer experience in that environment. That's why we have to wear clothes up here, which you wouldn't have to wear down there because we're tweaked to there. What that means for this um, sympathetic autonomic nervous system, or as everyone knows it, fight, flight, freeze, is you're tuned for watching the grass move. So you've got peripheral vision, you're focused on the task at hand, but you're detecting these threats and opportunities. It's a bit like an airplane's radar. It's constantly sweeping, what's happening? You see the grass move, you could probably freeze because you don't know if it's potential dinner or if your potential dinner. You know, what's moved the grass? Is it like a small deer that's been left by its mother that I can easily bag? Is it um, a snake or is it something bigger that's waiting for me like a leopard, you know, a really bad day? Once you've done that quick response, when you're not even doing it consciously, 
you then detect a little bit more detail and maybe the brown fur's got white dots on it and you go, ideal, that's dinner sorted. You get your spear out. Or maybe you spot that the like yellowy brown fur's got black spots on it and you go, oh dear, uh, I really hope I can run faster than Fred. You know, that kind of, <laughs> what am I going to do next? Or if you've, you know, if you've done this a lot and you've spoken to the village elders, you might know that the best way to kill a leopard is definitely don't climb up an acacia tree. If you back, if you sort of have a big long stick and there's loads of you, you might be able to back it down. You know, those sorts of things. And that's like where we became better at this sort of stuff than other animals because we passed on the experiences through an oral tradition. So that's, that's what physically happens in about half a second. What actually happens inside your body is you get a shock load dump of the right hormones to facilitate some kind of energetic response. Now that cortisol load along with adrenaline and a few other things that's exactly the same dump you get when you open a really shitty email because we've been tuned for 150,000 years to respond to those sorts of threats and opportunities and we've not had a software patch we really haven't so we've in the last maybe 100 200 years our pace of life has gone from walking pace to the guys I train supersonic you know and things are happening like that that would never have been encountered before and it's too fast for evolution to cope with so what we're having to do with our training is put this patch in to make sure they've got an appropriate response because evolution hasn't given us one for like your jet explodes at night over enemy territory there isn't an evolutionary patch for that but what you will get is this complementary dose of chemicals to energize your body for a fight flight freeze leopard response because it's kind of the nearest thing it's got so that's my that's my like Johnny the Survival Instructor, super simple analogy of what's going on in this hyper-complicated world that the psychologists are all over and physiologists. But that's, that's kind of what happens. Yeah, so the opposite to that would be the parasympathetic autonomic nervous system, wouldn't it? And I suppose in that situation, we want to get ourselves closer to that, which is the rest and digest state. Para, I always remember it as, like, as, as you're sort of lying down. So parasympathetic autonomic nervous system, the opposite half, as you very eloquently quoted it is the rest and digest. So the, the, the event occurs and it's a, a small antelope and you've, you've knocked it on the head and now you're eating it round the fire. Back in our ancestors' day, the cooking fire would be in the shade of the acacia tree. You'd probably be reclining on one elbow with your hunting and, and gathering tribal family and you're enjoying a nice meal. Because there's a fire the predators are keeping away, you can turn your back to the outside world and relax. You're looking inwards. You're enjoying good calories. You're getting a bit of fat off the meat. You know, you're getting that nice stimulus that you get from a McFlurry in modern life. And, and it, the world is good. And that lowers all the stress chemicals. It's replaced with a nice balance of relaxing things. And the key hack that you mentioned earlier is your breathing rate goes down. And that's the way we can trick our bodies into adopting that if we feel the stress from a, a nasty email. You know, you can lower your your um, your stress chemical levels by a couple of things. The main one being breathing at a lower cadence. But the one that I like, which really ties into that picture we painted, is by chewing. You know, there's a, there's a lot of evidence now, especially from a, a survival psychologist called Sarita Robinson, who I've worked with a lot in the past, who's proven that mastication, obviously say that very carefully, is it's a way of lowering stress because you're chewing that meal, the result of the hunt, and by chewing chewing gum, you can lower these stress chemicals in your body. So I, did, I used to do that all the time when I was flying and I didn't really realise why I was doing it. But it also, as you know, it'll draw oxygen-rich blood up to your brain. So it stimulates uh, in a positive way brain activity whilst reducing those, har not harmful in, in the normal context, but those what we now associate with stress chemicals in the body. So breathing at a more relaxed rate, so in for four, hold it, out for four, those sorts of numbers are what the NHS recommend. And then 
chewing as well and it'll just lower the tempo everything's cool yeah that would make sense because a lot of the times you see these indigenous tribes hunting and not always but a lot of the time they're chewing on something and i know sometimes they're chewing on psychedelic or psychoactive compounds but you see these these hunters in the zone and and they're laser focused when they're they're chewing certain things so yeah that makes sense yeah yeah and we've been, I've been to regions of the world um, when we've done survival stuff, like when I worked with the Chilean guys over in the uh, high Atacama, the Altiplano, you know, really, really dry and the altitude's a compounding factor. Everything's more difficult, super cold at night, super hot during the day. And the locals there all chew coca leaves just to cope with altitude. You know? Yeah, yeah. Helps with altitude sickness, doesn't it? Yes, that's it. That's it. Clearly, we weren't allowed to be military, but, you know, the locals are all at it. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Let's talk about then these principles that you you set out you line out in your book and let's do it from both perspectives a little bit of a crossover from a survival situation and how we can put these principles these points into our everyday lives as well because a lot of the people that i work with and the vast majority of people that listen to this podcast are busy people they may be working nine to fives they're business owners they're ceos they live fast-paced lifestyles so how can we put these principles into a working life and an everyday life as well? Yeah, beauty. So the, the schema that we teach people, the easiest way to remember it, and I don't like acronyms, but the easiest way to remember it is PLAN. So P-L-A-N standing for protection, location, acquisition of water and food, and then navigation, which is just a nice extra bit to have in real life, but you can, you can transpose that onto navigating around tasks. And protection, that one unpacks slightly differently from survival telly. So survival telly is all about charging around, probably half-dressed, catching small animals to, you know, to kill and eat. Or these days, it's entertainment, so it's more and more disgusting stuff that you have to try and choke down. Well, that's, that's not what we're on about. The thing that will kill you first isn't food no, or lack of. That's the last thing. What will kill you first once you've got through the actual dynamic thing that projected you into your surviving uh, situation, so if you've got any injuries from that, that's what will kill you first. So you've got to address first aid before anything else. And if your guys do any, off the back of this, any practical sort of survival training, the best thing they can do is get on a first aid course. Shit bust. You know, that's the single most productive way they could spend their time survival training. No point learning how to light fires, get some first aid training because that'll kill you first. So get some first aid training. The next thing in survival is what's going to kill me next. And it's probably an extreme of temperature. So it's as simple as wearing the right amount of clothing for the environment. And in the Arctic, if you're working, it's less than you think. And if you're in somewhere like the sea, it's more than you think. So you've got to have the right layers to stop this conduction convection of heat from your body um, and make sure that if it's a hot, hot place that you are conducting and convecting enough to stay at that sweet spot of around 37 Celsius. And you'll, you'll notice that in the gym, mate, I'm sure, Ali, from people's performance changing if they get too hot. You got any sort of examples of, those, of people just getting too hot and having to wait, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, it's a common thing, especially when people are doing more high-intensity activities like hit training or cardiovascular stuff. They quickly change their body temperature and get lightheaded or, or vice versa if you're doing outdoor training. I mean, I don't do it anymore, but back in the day, I used to run boot camps on the park in crazy conditions everything from snow to rain to sleet to sunshine to high heat and a lot of the the people that used to do my boot camp thought they needed 
loads of layers and particularly in the cold or in the snow loads of layers and obviously i've done a lot of work with the cold as well a lot of cold therapy ice baths cold showering and it's interesting and i now know well we're going to talk about this this story that i've got because i want to share this story with yourself and the listeners but my wife and i we were up in yorkshire not long ago and what are what are we in as we record this podcast november and it was october when we was there and i was just walking around in a t-shirt i mean i've been able to to build up my tolerance and get quite good at regulating my body temperature but not everyone is like that but yeah carry on mate temperature it's really really important yeah, so, no, so I'm really keen to hear your story now. But yeah, so the clothing bit, and there's another, there's another fact. It's not that good a story. Don't get too excited, mate. <laughs> the, the clothing bit's got like more to it as well. There's a little bit of required knowledge for that because you could, um, and I have, you could go to some fairly cheeky environments in a t-shirt, but it can't just be a cotton t-shirt. You know, a cotton t-shirt, it will kill you in some of the places we go to. And not everyone knows that, you know, because why would they? They live in vast majority of us live in an urban environment you can quickly get into some kind of shelter habitation blah so wool's brilliant so takeaway number two for this get some first aid training being number one wear wool it's absolutely phenomenal the campaign for wool uh, prince charles's initiative is a great thing you can find loads of decent stuff from them but yeah so um clothing second layer of defense against extremes of temperature and then we're looking into is the temperature's really really up or down what else do i need and that's when that is when you start looking at building dens making shelters if it's super duper cold, you need to light a fire first because you'll have to warm your hands up because your hands are going to get cold handling things and you can't light a fire with really sort of lack of dexterity frozen hands. So light the fire first. If it's super cold, then build a shelter. If it's not that bad, build a house. If that isn't warm enough, then light a fire, get yourself some central heating. You know? So that's protecting yourself from the environment and the smoke from the fire will see off predators, be they um, you know, big things like I don't know, snakes maybe, or a wolf if you're up somewhere really back and beyond, or even little annoying things like mosquitoes. So that's what we're talking about. Clearly, when we do the military survival in hostile territory, there's a whole layer on top of that, which is people are out to get you. So we can't talk about it here, but we have to add another sort of pillar to that pyramid or pillar to that temple. Once you've done the survival stuff, the protection from first aid clothing, shelter or fire, what you then have to do is location. And what that means is signal for rescue. So shouting for help, be that overtly in peacetime or very, very sneakily in wartime. If you don't let someone know you need help, you'll be there forever. And that's the key difference with, with what we train. It's far simpler to let somebody know that you need a hand and then wait for the yellow helicopter with a, you know, it's going to bring hopefully beer and pizza than thrash around trying to eat rabbits. You know, why not just go for that option? The next most important thing is something you'll definitely see in the gym and it'll be, you'll be absolutely all over Alan is that water is far more important to human life than food. You know, we'll die within sm- such a short time frame if the environment's extreme, if you don't have enough hydration. So we talk all about hydration from Arctic and desert to jungle and at sea, how to do it. And then lastly, within that PLA part of plan, we look at food acquisition. And it's the same again. We're looking at the easiest things first. So commonly identifiable plants that you can just pick while you're walking, like nettles, or like um, people probably call it bulrush, but like cattail, I know it, typha latifolia, grows in water, so you're there for a drink, full of, full of carbohydrates. So we're teaching people easy, easy wins that they could get as a net gain when they're also doing something else. So concurrent activity. We're not really teaching them to build elaborate traps and snares. I mean, we do cover that at the end, but we're not expecting them to be successful. We're hoping they're rescued before the traps and snares get triggered. You know, it's that kind of, that kind of outlook, really efficient, 
get yourself back to friendly forces type stuff. And then lastly, navigation. And again, we layer it. We'll talk about map and compass stuff. We'll look at the moon and the stars. We'll look at the sun. We'll look at the way the plants grow. And these are useful things. People have, when they've had to, because they haven't been able to call up a helicopter, they have walked from war zones, crossed international boundaries, and got back to friendly forces just because they knew that trees tend to grow in a certain pattern. Now, this is fundamental stuff that is out there if people want to know it, but not a lot of people know. So we're just putting these little data banks in their heads in the right order so they're accessing the files in a logical way and that they could got, they've got an adaptable plan for anywhere in the world. So that's why we call it plan. I mean, at work, it's just protect location, water and food. And we do a bit of nav at the end, but plan's a nice way to pack it up. The next bit that we'll probably chat about, Ali, is how we can apply those sorts of fundamentals, that outlook, into every day. Because the key bit really is you can have a really nice plan written down on a notebook or something. You know, you can, you can have that. But the difficult part with all of this is making the first step towards your ultimate goal. You know, that is the hardest step, isn't it? It's probably the same with guys who haven't been to the gym for a while, getting out the door to come to see you. So that's the bit that I'm fascinated by that we'll probably chat about next. And that's where you can turn it all into a kind of a, a perseverance engine, a triangle of survival, which once you've spun it up, will keep you going. And there are some amazing stories of people who've managed to do that with horrific injuries that just kept going. So yeah, that's the bit I like. Yeah, absolutely love it, mate. And it's so simple and easy to remember. And that's really what people need in this day and age. They want quick and easy to remember tips and tricks and hacks. And I know you don't like acronyms, but it really works well, mate. And the one I really want to point out is is the shelter one, protecting yourself from the elements, looking after your body temperature. And a lot of people think in a survival situation, they need to get food and water first and they don't look after themselves and protect themselves straight away. And then also, as you said, signaling for help. And I'm obsessed with this, me and my wife, Sarah. We love watching survival programs and survival things on TV. And it's amazing how many stories you watch or you read of survival situations where they don't actually signal for help until four or five days into their ordeal. And you're like, wow, that's crazy. But I suppose in that situation, you're not always thinking clearly. So if it's okay with you, John, let's now go on to putting this into everyday life then. Not everyone listening to this is going to be an outdoorsy person necessarily, like us, for example, but there's definitely some brilliant bits of information that they can take away from this. So let's talk about it in the working environment and the everyday life environment. How do we apply this plan acronym into our day-to-day lives? So there's, there's a few stages to it, I reckon, Ali. And what, what I'll talk about first is like, just to simplify even more, you could take plan and you could just call it what's going to kill me first. If you then translate that into real life for most of us, because you know, I've got the same sort of um, admin stack at work and the paperwork stuff that has to go behind all the things I do. So I'm familiar with like processing information and having to do team meetings and this sort of stuff. You know, you can apply it absolutely anywhere. And I, I certainly do. And others have, have adopted it with, with decent amount of success. I must say it's, it is it is translatable and useful. Plan becomes what's going to harm me first. So simple analogy for that would be to look at your inbox in the morning um, however many that you, you know you get and you look down and there'll be one in there that might trigger that fight or flight response you know that's the one that you think oh no that's probably the one you need to do first the natural response is to go oh dear i'll do that this afternoon but if you start it early and use some of the hacks that um, i've mentioned in my book about how to manage your time and that you can get through it a lot quicker than you think 
And all you're doing is just ad adopting that protected location acquisition navigation, that what's going to harm me first protocol. It's dead simple. There are other brain hacks you can do. Like, so, you know, I've got my notebook here because I always have a notebook. But if you're finding that sort of task in itself difficult, an instant thing you can do with a pencil, so if you put your pencil in your mouth sideways while you're working, it forces your mouth into a position that your brain interprets as a smile. That creates a feedback loop in your head where your brain thinks you're happy because you're smiling and it makes you feel happy. So you don't even have to be feeling happy, just concentrating with it sideways and automatically the task got less painful. So there are little things you can do like that. But when we get into how you can make a really big task easier to achieve, that really equates to survival as well. So plan is just a part of it. What we do with survival training is we give the guys and girls a pre-packaged what to do next by that, that plan. So all that somebody needs to do to start working in a survival thing is know that and then choose the right task. Not easy every day, but you know you can prioritize by what will harm you first. What comes next is really important. And this spin can start on any point of this axis. So just by doing something, you will start to feel better about your situation. And that's true of people who have to get back to friendly forces. Even when I've been doing like telly stuff in Tundra and places that are really austere, each time I take a step, I know that I'm one meter closer to a warm campfire and a bit of boiling water than I was a second ago. And the next step, I'm two meters closer. And that quickly becomes kilometers. And then I see a little patch of land that I know I can build a shelter in. So that's how I practically employ it survival-wise. In work-related stuff, by doing a bit of work on whatever task you've chosen, you are controlling your environment. That gaining of a sense of control is absolutely pivotal to this because what psychologists have found in the past is that hardship in itself, so a difficult situation in and of itself, is not enough to kill our hope of a successful outcome. The thing that kills our hope of a successful outcome is that hardship where we feel like we have no control. So if someone is in a really, really bad place and like the worst case examples are probably things like concentration camps. And if you read like, you've probably already read it, but if your listeners read Victor Frankl, yeah, Man's Search Meaning, Victor Frankl, amazing psychiatrist in Auschwitz book. He noticed that people gave up hope when they couldn't feel any control over their environment. So if you can gain any control, be that for me taking one step in Tundra or for the person who's watched this, having a go at that first email and doing some of it, that, what that means is by taking control, you can keep your hope alive. You've gained an element of um, decisive control over the problem. You know that a little bit more will do more. And what that does is that engages your hope, plan, work triangle. So hope becomes what shall I do next via whatever plan it is, what will harm me first, subtasking it, you know, separate inner goals, down to do the work. Doing the work generates the control, which inculcates hope, Hope allows you to plan, plan allows you to work, work allows you to hope, plan, work, hope, plan, work, hope, plan, work. And before you know it, you'll have to set an alarm to stop yourself, go and have a cup of tea, pat on the back, job's done, watch the do next. And I'm not all about making everything super efficient. I believe there's a bit of joy to be had around the tasks, but you'll certainly smash them even quicker. You'll probably do it with a smile on your face and you've raised your own morale to use a military expression. You know, you feel better about it all. And you can apply that to things in lockdown as well. So that's that's my kind of key takeaway. And that's something that I've not seen anywhere. That was my penny dropping moment when I was writing my book, when I was patching all these things together, the psychological principles, the stuff like Viktor Frankl's things. There's a psychologist called Martin Seligman in the States who talks about learned optimism. You, you patch all these things together, use survival as the, the sort of start point, but then you can apply it to anything 
that was my sort of eureka moment when I was doing my writing, Ali, that bit. Then it's that positive reinforcement, isn't it? It's that constant feedback loop of I'm accomplishing something and getting things done and then you can progress from there. Exactly, mate. And then people will see it, I guess, in your world when they start to get little benefits from the training, you know, whatever their motivation be for fitness or for body shape or those sorts of things. Well, it's like Sarah, my wife and I, we always say the hardest part is getting going. I mean, I've been in health and fitness for close to 13 years and we're gym owners and we are passionate about health and fitness. We love it. But getting the actual gym workout started and getting going is always difficult and always the hardest part. But once you get going, you feel great. You get that constant feedback and you always feel amazing after it as well. But like you said, with that email or that task or that presentation or that meeting that you have to do or complete, it's just getting going with it. And often it's that that P word, isn't it? It's that procrastination that holds people back, stops them and sometimes even lets them down. Yeah, destroys their, their sort of optimism. And that's the key bit with, with what we've just spoken about. By having a plan, even if that's in um, simplest terms, what's going to harm me first, just choosing the thing to tackle, not to see it as one massive problem, but to compartmentalize it in your brain, analyze it as a lot of little things, which is what survival and everyday tasks are. It's not one mountain. It's like a lot of little things. Which one of those can I tackle that will affect the outcome? I'll just have a go at that bit. By doing it, the pile gets smaller. And the, the smaller it gets, the more in control you are. And the whole thing spins faster and faster. Why then, John, do people not get the big things done? Why do they panic? I know we've spoken about the whole flight or fight thing, but why is it that people can't get stuff done they can't complete these tasks they can't get the big things done and they do what i call laboring or ambling through their day yeah it's well firstly that's what we're evolved to do we're evolved to be lazy and to save calories because back in the day back in the day you know you didn't charge around in circles we're, we're asked to do a lot more these days than we were designed to do you know what i mean not um, to oversimplify it so that's probably why they maybe they've just taken or been imposed with too much stuff because it's there's a lot out there and it can be too many stimuli yeah it could be that couldn't it It could just be there are so many competing demands for the attention that it's difficult to pick so that's why what will harm me first is helpful i believe because it allows you to take a sit back the key thing with all of this is as well a good hack for any of this and it's a particularly british thing Whilst you're choosing which of those multitude of things to tackle first, make a cup of tea. And that's true in the wilderness or at home. You know, make a brew. You've made the water safe to drink if you're in the wilderness. If you're at home, caffeine is a brilliant game changer for these sorts of situations. As you probably know from working out, caffeine will boost your energy and your, you know, your application of your mental faculties. And tea is better than coffee because the L-theanine in tea means that the caffeine is released more gradually Whereas in coffee, it sort of goes like that. So have a cup of tea, even while you're just thinking about it, and bang some sugar in because your brain needs glucose. So 1% dehydration will impair cognition, not enough glucose will impair cognition, caffeine will help cognition. Cup of tea, British NATO standard, tea white one, that will assist. So there's a little you know, obvious cheat. But then prioritising using the, uh, the, the what's going to harm me first. And it's perhaps that... Um, there are so many stimuli it's difficult to choose is one of the reasons people don't start. But equally, you know, we, we tend to put things off a little bit. And if you put them off a little bit, it can sort of stack up to be too much. You know, the task is now bigger than the time available. And that's what in things that I've done with work, that's what generates panic. 
So a perceived restriction in space or time, if you haven't got enough of either, that will create panic. Panic's actually fairly rare, but I've seen it when I've been doing, you've probably uh, seen it on TV or maybe even had a go yourself, but there's a, there's a metal box that they sink in a swimming pool with people in it and spin it around to simulate a ditching helicopter. That's when you see panics. The water's coming up here and you can't breathe. And some of them aren't brilliant swimmers that are in the box with you. That's when people actually factually panic. So that might be that generating that sense in, in people that they've left it a little bit too long. The task's bigger than the amount of time. That's probably it. So the key to that is recognizing early how much you've got to do and then jotting down your plan so that you do it in little chunks. The same again, little chunks, little chunks, little chunks. And if it is too much, we're getting into the location part of survival. Ask for help. No one's going to tell you off for asking for help but they'll probably tell you off if you miss a deadline at work that you've said you can meet when you can't. So ask for help early. I suppose that stress, that panic, but more so the increase of cortisol and the increase of adrenaline, I suppose they're a, a good thing, aren't they, to start off with, but it's when they overwhelm you or send you into that state of panic that you're going to have issues. And this will tie me nicely or lead us nicely into my story that I want to share with you and the listeners now. Maybe we should have done it early in the show, but let's get to it. Let me share this story. So back at the end of October, Sarah and I, we decided to take a little trip away. Obviously, challenging year in 2020, so we wanted to have a little bit of a break, almost go off grid and just do a few walks, get out in nature and just enjoy some downtime. So we booked a little Airbnb up in Yorkshire in between Scarborough and Whitby. So it's the, the Yorkshire Moors. And yeah, just did some walking. And on the, the Friday, we decided to, to do a long one. So I found this walk on the internet. It was uh, just a, a website. I was like, this sounds good. So we gave it a go. And we'd, we'd done a long way. I think we'd done about 10 miles. And there was only a few miles to go. And we got to a fork in the path. And... It was either go alongside the cliff or turn right and then go a little bit higher and uh, uh, and on this path. And on the instructions, the the, the, the maps, the directions I was reading, it said, uh, take the left-hand turn, take the left-hand fork in the in the path and, and follow that alongside the cliff. And if you follow it alongside the cliff, you'll, you'll go in the right direction. And as we're walking down this, the, this cliff, the, or this side of the cliff on this path, it's starting to get tighter and tighter and then there's more over overgrowth there's, there's there's branches and there's logs falling down and we're scrambling a little bit and also at the same time the light's starting to fade so we've got this in the back of our mind as well and the further we go the more the overgrowth and the undergrowth is is almost consuming us so we got the the phones out again we had very little battery so we're running out of light we're running out of battery on our phones looking at google maps i think and Sarah says, look, we need to be up there. We're kind of off, off track. So she decided to say, let's, let's scramble up this, this ridge. And then if we get to the top, we'll be on the right path where we're meant to be. And I was a bit unsure, but I, I just went with it anyway. So we started climbing up. There's all these kind of thorns and branches and the, and the surface of the side of the cliffs like falling away. Scrambling up, scrambling up, get higher and higher. And we're probably, I don't know, maybe like 10 or 15 meters from the top, not far from the top and it's just all brambles all thorns there's no way that we could get through it and then this is when the panic started to to kick in and we started to get a bit worried 
and Sarah is slightly scared of heights, well, maybe a lot scared of heights, and she hadn't realized how far that we'd climbed up this cliff, and she looked behind, and then she was like, oh my God, we're so high, and started to panic, and then I got a bit worried as well, and I was just saying, like, let's calm down, let's calm down, and then I was like, we've got to keep going up, but we couldn't get through, and then I was like, the only way is down, and Sarah was like, I can't go up, I can't go down, we're stuck, we're stuck, and then I was like, oh no, what should we do, shall we call the mountain rescue, what are we going to do, we're going to have to spend the night up here, and then Sarah started crying, and it nearly, to some, some point, to some extent, got out of control, <laughs> so we're panicking a little bit, and then I said, look, the only way we can go is down, we've got to go back down the way we came, find the path that we was on, go back to where the fork in the road was, and then we'll be able to get back to where we're staying, back home. So we scrambled down and the lights fade in. We're basically sliding down on our backsides all the way to the bottom. Got cut scratches, uh, banging ourselves on, on rocks and, and, uh, and getting muddy and wet. And thorns sticking into us. Made it down to the bottom. And by the time we hit the path that we was on, it was pretty much dark. And we had maybe 5 or 10% battery left on our phone. We managed to shine the lights on our phone, scramble through the overgrow through this path and back to where the fork in the road was and we was like phew we've made it it's pitch black now but we can get back home because we know pretty much the, the way back to where we're staying and we laugh about it now and we got back and we was having a, a giggle about it and had a shower and some food and stuff and it all was kind of forgotten with a great story to tell but that is an example nothing too crazy not exactly a survival situation but how easily it is to to lose your core to panic and it could have been a lot worse than what it was mate that is the most common way for actual normal humans to end up in a survival scenario for want of a better phrase <clears throat> it's um it's been proven in studies in the u.s where you've got really big national parks that it will be people out on a day hike that have some kind of navigational or maybe injury issue towards the end of the day who haven't got the stuff for an overnighter because they didn't expect to be out overnight, they're the people that the emergency services respond to the most. So you'll get um, people with maybe health issues or perhaps collapse near the car park and that sort of thing. But in terms of extended survival stuff, it's that exact problem set. And it's, it's, it's much more common than you'd think. So the, the ones that, um, the things that sprang to mind for me there would be, have some battery life on your phone that you're going to save for the worst case, which would be to call for help if you're absolutely crag fast somewhere. Um, or even better, if you you know if people go mega remote, have a, a separate system completely like a beacon system, 406 megahertz or a spot tracker. And then have you heard of what three words? Yeah, I've got it downloaded on my phone now. I didn't at the time, but I do have it now. Yeah, because the emergency services will get that and not everyone can read a map. Um, you know, especially not if they're worried or if it's rained and the map's got a bit smudged or they could misread a grid or not know the name or the pronunciation of the place. But the what three words thing's brilliant. So that's that's good, a good one to have on your phone. John, can you just explain to the guys listening in what what three words is? Because we know what it is and, and we're aware of it. But at the time, I didn't know what it was. And it was only when I explained what had happened to one of my clients that she was saying, oh, you've got to download what three words are. And I was like, what the hell is what three words? So can you just explain to the guys listening in what what three words is? Because some people might be like, I don't know what that is. Sure, Ali. Yeah, so um, if you found yourself in a really sticky situation, you had to call either the Coast Guard or Mountain Rescue or the police and all of those services you dial in the UK through 999. So you'd have to remember anything. 
What Three Words is a simple app which will give your position anywhere on the planet to within, I think, three metres, and it'll have three unique words. And it'll be something mental like foxglove, banana, badger, you know, and you tell that to, and that's probably someone's house, but you, you tell that to the emergency services, they'll put it into their computer and they'll go, right, we're on our way. And there's adverts for it online where it's proven to help like wilderness kayakers, that kind of thing. But it's a dead simple technique. There are other ways of knowing where you are, but that's a good one as like your banker if it really goes belly up. And then the other bit, I suppose, in your scenario would be maybe carry a spare battery charger. So you've got a bit more grunt for your phone should you need it. But one of the, and people always complain about mobile phones. Everyone relies on the phones. But back, you know, in the 1400s, when we first got magnetic compasses or 1200s or whatever it was, people probably complained about over-reliance on compasses because the stars have always been fine for me. Why are you using that? So there's nothing wrong with a mobile phone, but it's always good to have an alternative means of navigating, which is you know possibly the primary means with a map and compass. So, yeah. I just wanted to add on something that we haven't really mentioned, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, mate, but I always believe in following your gut instinct and that's helped me in a few situations recently when i've been out walking a couple of times i got lost not had the map lost battery lost signal or whatever the case may be and i've just gone with my gut instinct and it's so far worked for me and proved me right is that something that you agree with and that you'd recommend i, I there's a caveat with so some of the guys and girls that we we train you, you wouldn't get away with it if you trusted your gut unfortunately some of the places where you go um, I think don't listen to me then <laughs> ignore that listen to the survival expert <laughs> but I think, I think what you're saying though mate is you, because you, you you've been out all day you know it's a decent tab you, uh, you know walk you've been out on so you've picked up a lot of atmospherics about where you needed to get to and it's it's common sense that if you go up a cliff and get stuck the best thing to do is go back down and, and come back out to a known point of decision like the fork in the path so that makes complete sense. The dangerous part for our guys um, and some of the potentially some of you watches, if they trust their gut in fog on the hill, they could just step off. Yeah. So um, I think it'd be probably better if, if people spent five minutes on the Ordnance Survey website, if they've never done any navvying, like you do a lot in the Peak District, but if people aren't comfortable outdoors, then there's some really good videos on the Ordnance Survey site about how to use maps and compasses. So that's And the Ordnance... And the ordnance survey maps, if you are in the UK, are absolutely brilliant. I'm sure in other countries, whether you're in the, the States or Canada or wherever, you've got something that is similar as well that can help you. Yeah, they are. Normal. Yeah. They've got decent mapping. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one, trusting your gut. I, I think it's a, it's a good way of explaining quite a complicated process because there was a lot going on that day. You tuned into a lot of different stuff. You knew that you had to go back to get to a known start point. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm I suppose it's the environment, isn't it, John? What you're saying is you've got to trust it in the right environment. I mean, around there, it's not that remote. The worst case scenario is we might spend a night out on the side of a cliff. But if you're in, I don't know, the Rockies or the Outback, then it's a different matter. Yeah, it is a bit, yeah. But, but it's common that, more common than you think, what, what happened. I mean, we live to tell the tale, a few scratches, no broken bones. And one thing I'd like to point out is it paid off that myself and Sarah are reasonably, relatively fit because we did a lot of scrambling up and down and it was quite physical work pulling ourselves up, maybe just clinging onto roots and branches that were hanging out the side of the cliff. And we'd already walked nine or ten miles 
So it pays to be fit. It does, mate. 100% agree. Totally. Love it, love it. Okay, mate, the the next thing I want to ask you, and this is more for personal interest, but I think a lot of the listeners will be interested in this as well, and it's this. Have you ever found yourself in a in a challenging or a tricky or a daunting situation like Sarah and I found ourselves in where maybe you've you feared for your life or something that was a bit hairy, anything like that happened to you, and are you happy to share the story or a couple of stories with the listeners? Well, I think everyone gets them, don't they? It's just a different context. Well, I've had a few through work. Um, and like you were talking a minute ago, you know, you, you and your wife were, were very physically fit and had done enough of this sort of stuff to be able to rationalise it and backtrack and make the right decisions and get back to sort of the right place. If it had been a different pair of people with less experience and less fitness, it could have ended completely differently, you know, and that's why these things go wrong. So the situations I've been in... Um, We've, we've always done a bit of preparation and planning. We tend to know where we're going up appropriate equipment unless something really catches us out. Um, but unless you've done that pre-thinking, it's difficult to know what to do. So I'm not going to kind of belittle the situations because for someone else, they could be, um, they could be fairly serious, but we've had, I've had situations where um, vehicles have got stuck in the, uh, in the high Andes where there's low oxygen and, and low temperatures and no water for miles that we've had to get dig, dig out of snow that, that you know it's just come off the wrong part of the track whatever um, and we were there for a few hours moving boulders in sort of really low oxygen levels and it was phenomenally hard work and we we're really joking about who we we're going to eat first but you know it's like it, it was one of those where um if we hadn't have had well we did have a sat phone so we could always have phoned for help but it would have been professionally so humiliating to, to call for rescue when we're survival instructors should know better. We just lay, we just grizzed out and dug ourselves out. And the, uh, and the, I've been on, I've been away filming, um, doing stuff on, on boats. And we were once on a boat that ended up on a reef and it started to sink. You know, that was quite sketchy. Um, but again, you know, you just know what to do. You know, you, you, you try and stop the water coming in. You turn the pump on as much as you can. You work out that the engine's broken. So we need a tow. Um, like we were talking about earlier, mate, calling for help early was what got us out of that. So we got on the radio. The the guy in charge of the boat was was witness. He was exhibiting quite a lot of those symptoms of someone who's a psychological casualty. He was a little bit out, spaced out, not really with it. So me, me and a friend called Jake, Jake Zwig, who sort of gripped the situation. Jake's got a lot of boat experience, and I've done a lot of this sort of survival at sea stuff. So I got on the radio, and we, we called sort of over our immediate horizon, which isn't too far away to uh, another vessel that was part of the shoot, they came and bailed us out. But the plan was always, if that isn't working, we're phoning the Coast Guard. You know, not messing about if this goes if this goes south. And that's where sometimes gut instincts don't work because we had some um, underwater cameramen with us and they're in suits and that. And one of, the, one of the guys wanted to swim off to an island. And we're like, well, no, don't do that um, in, a, you know, in a black wetsuit. And it's dark now, you know, it's fully dark nighttime. Um, because it's not an island, it's probably a mangrove, and we know there are sharks in these waters, and this is the time they'll be out. And he was like, "Yeah, good idea." It's like, but so you know, people will maybe choose inappropriate responses if they're not used to that kind of scenario. And luckily, we managed to get the pump working. The water level went down in the bottom of the boat. Um, me and the guys I was with all had a laugh and a, and a rum afterwards when we got back because it's traditional at the end of a survival stuff back in the day to have a, a shot of rum. So I got them those. But yeah, see. I think if that had been other people in a different context. The key thing to point out here, John, is that you prepped, aren't you? You're prepared and you trained. And I think when you do see 
some of these survival stories or you hear about them and there's probably many stories that we don't hear about where people have been unable to survive and unfortunately have lost their lives and a lot of the time it's a lack of preparation so they've gone out maybe unprepared forgotten their water forgotten their compass or forgotten their map don't have enough supplies don't have the right clothing and just the the lack of preparation or that maybe one thing that they've forgotten costs them yeah exactly mate and you'll you'll get a lot of these uh, scenarios where it's the cumulative effect of lots of little things where the swiss cheese lines up and but that's the same in everyday life isn't it mate if you wake up on a monday morning and go to work or not many people are going to work at the moment they're working from home but it's the same at home if you don't have that plan and that preparation then you're not setting yourself up for success you're more than likely going to fail and you won't be able to handle tricky situations in the right way and I guess it's that age-old saying, isn't it? Planning to fail is failing to... No. And I guess it's that age-old saying, isn't it? Failing to prep is prepping to fail, or failing to plan is planning to fail. It is, and it's not necessarily um, that uncommon at the moment for people to get really blindsided. The one, the one event in my life which I've had to bank all this stuff that where it's really, really paid out was years ago, just after I'd done the most advanced survival training course that the UK offered at the time. Um, I was flying my helicopter around up in, um, you know, in Yorkshire somewhere, actually, a little green Puma helicopter. And when I came back from a trip to Ripon Barracks, landed on, the, help, the phone rang, and they said, look, flight attendant Hudson might probably call me something else, rock probably about then. Uh, you go give the med centre a call, and it was something I had no control about. It will never affect my day-to-day life, but the military stopped me flying. And there and then, I, in that one phone call, I lost my career. It's gone, Pew, evaporated. And, but what I managed to do, after you go through the usual pattern of why and then getting pretty grumpy about it, is you use those survival priorities, what's going to actually harm me first. You go through that hope, plan, work cycle. And I, well, what can I affect about this? No point worrying about the stuff I can't control. What can I control? No point languishing around at the home base. And I went to work at the survival school. You know, I enjoyed it. I wanted to do more of it. I chose an open door rather than bang my head against a closed one. Um, and it's the most it's the best decision I've ever made and I've loved it 20 years of doing this it's been absolutely brilliant I mean sometimes you sort of think oh I wish I could still do a bit of that but then equally you know I've got uh, friends who've, who've done really well with flying and I've got other friends who've had life-changing injuries or, or aren't with us anymore because of flying so I think just count what you've got be really grateful for what you have and only worry about the stuff you can control don't worry about the stuff you can't what are your top tips for the situation that we find ourselves in at the moment then John with this global pandemic and i do my very best to keep my podcast as evergreen as possible but we can't ignore the situation we're in and i know it's affecting a great deal of people we can't ignore it you put out this this pdf with some tips on how people can can get through the pandemic and i have read it (laughs) so people can go and grab the copy of that but what would be your, your top tips for people to navigate through this global pandemic and be positive and be healthy because I said about making my podcast or keeping my podcast evergreen, but we may have another pandemic in the future. So how can they get through this one in a healthy and positive way and any other pandemics that may occur in the future? It's a lot of what we've spoken about already, mate. And if anyone does want, it's a free PDF, free download. So help yourselves. How to survive a pandemic, John Hudson, just, you know, fill your boots, tell your friends and, and, you know, have one on us we're trying to share hopefully what's useful information at a weird time so it's a lot of the stuff we've already spoken about compartmentalizing stuff not worrying about stuff you can't affect 
focusing on what you can affect and, and really drilling into that. And then the other bits, I use a lot of survival examples when I'm, I'm teaching and when I was writing. So inspirational stories. The people I found who are best at things like lockdown are people who do it for a career. So lighthouse keepers of old and people on the International Space Station. And what they do is they say survival isn't a, an individual thing. It's a team sport. So be aware of those in your immediate surroundings, which is obviously difficult on the International Space Station to not get in people's way. So it's really sound advice. Chris Hadfield um, says it, it's about being the right person. You know, it's not about expecting others to bend to you. It's about a, a bit of give and take, a bit of compromise when you're all pressed in together, which is sort of common sense, but hard to remember in the moment. If you're finding that being on top of each other in a small space is too much, just have a 15 minute time out. Go and take a break away from the cause of the stress. Zero point shouting and screaming about it. Go somewhere else, 15 minutes, chill out. Probably the best thing people can do if they've not finished their entire library is read a book. Improving more than gaming. Those stats blew me away, mate. And you dropped the, the stats in the book. And what is it? 60% better than going for a walk. 700% better than playing on your PlayStation or Xbox. And that's absolutely amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? So read a book, and if it's something that's going to help, like a free book about how to cope with the pandemic, all the better. And then what you said... Yeah, yeah, or I've heard the How to Survive book's really good as well. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Love you for that. But the other thing that ties in with your bit, Ali, is it's absolutely brilliant, if you can, to get out in the fresh air and get some green around you. If you can do that, even if it's just a park in an urban context, green spaces have been proven to provide something like 50K equivalent money in the bank psychologically. The benefit you'd have in your brain having an extra 50k in your bank you get from walking through green spaces regularly. You know, that green prescription, getting out into nature, you cannot beat it. If you walk to the park bench, sit with a paper book and read that with a cup of tea, you probably hit all the bases. And that's like, you can't really get much better than that in terms of sorting out your, your, your brain chemistry and all those bits and just chilling out. Yeah, definitely. Very much so. I can't speak highly enough of how important it is to get out in nature it's so important and me and sarah we're always out walking get out because it's just good for the soul it's not only good for your your physical health but also your mental and spiritual health as well for for us for us we're getting that physical workout but it's almost as if it's like a a form of meditation and we've spoken extensively about meditation on this podcast but not everyone enjoys just sitting still and meditating and not everyone finds it a, an easy way to do it and when you say meditation to people sometimes they're automatically turned off from it for whatever reason but walking you're just so in the moment we find when we're out walking wherever it may be that we're getting fresh air we're so in the moment we're getting that physical workout vitamin d it's just ticking so many boxes you can't beat it can you it's absolutely amazing Awesome, awesome. The next thing then I want to ask you, and again, this is just out of, of personal interest more than anything, is about your favorite survival story. And I know we've mentioned that there are many, many different survival stories. There's a many amazing feats of people surviving just when all hope was lost and when it would seem almost impossible for that person or that group of people to survive. And there's also people that unfortunately, for whatever reason, don't make it out of life. What is your favorite survival story, John? Have you got a particular favorite? I know you mentioned a few in your book, but what's your, 
one standout survival story? Yeah, there were a few, as you'd imagine, mate. And I've got, I've been lucky enough to kind of harvest lots of ones that I find personally interesting over the years. And the ones in the book are just my choices. So there are loads out there for anyone to choose. One that I think stands out is a, a German teenager called Juliana Kurpka, whose aeroplane was struck by lightning on Christmas Eve 1971, and it exploded above the Andes, the Peruvian Andes. She fell for two and a half to three miles through space without a parachute on a three-person seat, which spanned like a sycamore seed. And that effect prevented her from, as she crashed through the canopy and was slowed down by all the vines and lianas of the jungle, stopped her dying. So she fell three miles at night into the jungle and didn't die, which is amazing in itself. But what she did next was she remembered one thing that her dad had told her, which was if you follow water in a jungle, it will eventually lead to people. And she looked for her mum, who had been sat next to her. So she'd had a seatbelt fastened, the mum hadn't, mum's gone forever. After about a day of not finding her mum, she sat there and listened, heard a trickle of water, not a river, just heard a trickle, followed the trickle until it became a stream, or the stream until it became a river, and then 11 days later is rescued. I think that is absolutely amazing. A teenager, a kid who's had no training, who just remembers one key bit of information and walks out of the jungle after an absolutely incredible fall through space. I think... That's not something that's repeatable, I don't think, but it, the bit that happened after the kind of shock is what knowing one thing and that helping you. I like that because it's, it's a kind of an analogy for what we've been talking about, isn't it? Yeah, unbelievable, amazing. And again, it's just a bit of preparation. I mean, not fully prepared and not fully prepped. Yeah, and just one little nugget of information that she's remembered from her father that has stuck with her and ultimately saved the life exactly yeah yeah i like that what about you you got a favorite favorite story yeah i mean my favorite one it's been a bit dramatized by hollywood but i still love the yossi ginsburg story in the amazon surviving for three weeks in the jungle of the amazon with hardly anything lost all of his friends i just find that story absolutely incredible but he followed footsteps for ages as well, didn't he? He turned out to be his own. And getting over that psychological hump must have been really difficult. So it's those bits when you've tried really hard, you think you're at your wit's end, and then another barrier is thrown up to push through all of those. That's the bits I like, yeah. Yeah, walk around in a circle, absolutely unbelievable, crazy, really. Yeah, I mean, there's a few others that really stick out for me. One that's really prominent in my mind is the story of, of Steve Callahan, 96 Days adrift the sailor uh when his, his his boat capsized and i remember my dad shoving that book his book in front of me when i was probably like seven or eight years old and he's like read this read this this incredible survival story this guy was lost at sea for 96 days and he survived it's unbelievable so maybe my my interest and my passion in in survival stories and all things survival were from my dad from a young age there's also one that I learned about recently my, my wife and I was watching a survival program on the Discovery Channel. I think it's quite a few years old now, but there was a story of a, an English guy. I think his name's Ken Jones. Don't hold me to that. But he was out hiking, trekking a mountain in Romania on his own. And a, a really bad storm came in and an avalanche hit him. And he shattered his pelvis, I believe, and his femur. And he was eight miles from, from civilization, from the nearest 
house I think it was and he crawled and hopped pretty much the whole way and he had to cross two rivers which were icy cold with a broken pelvis and a broken femur and he made it he made it out and survived against all the odds and I think it was four days that it took him and all he had on him was a scone which he ate on the first night he was out there and he did his best to get water as and when he could and yeah just absolutely incredible survival story unbelievable really and I find with a lot of them as it was with this one I just shared with you it's just that sheer will to survive that grit that determination and to some extent that hope that they're, they're going to make it out alive yeah keep going man it's always there's always something you can affect you can always get a bit of control that will in, in generate the hope and just that that thing will spin up if you do something you sit there and do nothing we, we, i've worked a lot with the canadians in very very cold temperatures and they a lot of them are the rescue guys who parachute in to save people and more than once they've described getting to somebody and they've been frozen solid dead but they'll be sat kind of with the head in the hands because it's all a little bit much and they haven't started to do anything you know they've just they've just sat there not injured but dead because they didn't get going you've got to get yeah it's just like ticking off a checklist isn't it just ticking off little tasks as you go yeah exactly exactly that it's not one big thing mate it's a series of little things definitely definitely well john that was amazing thank you so much i really really enjoyed you sharing your knowledge with us and also sharing your stories i know the listeners will get so much from this episode Hopefully we can do it again and, and, and speak about more of these these areas and go into even more detail. I just want to round off this podcast by asking you, which survival environment would you least like to find yourself in? I know you mentioned earlier that being stranded at sea is probably one of the worst situations that you can find yourself in. But is that the same for you? Would you least like to be stranded at sea? Which would be your least favorite survival environment or survival situation? It's a, it's a really good question. It's a funny one, isn't it? Because the jungle, I, I really enjoy going to the jungle, to jungles because it's like, it's, a, it's full of life. You know, it's tweaked for it. It's the right conditions, which is why it can be hard work because everything's trying to live on you or from you. Um, deserts are stunning. You know, it's a challenge and there's a reason nobody lives there, but they're absolutely stunning. And I love going to the Arctic because the proper high Arctic where you're working with the Canadian uh, rangers, the, the Inuit guys and girls who, who teach igloo building at minus 70, you know, like proper cheeky temperatures where like going to the toilet at minus 70 is an epic and you can't do it wrong. You've got to do it right. You know, you'll come back a different person if you do it wrong. But the, the hardest place for me, mate, and this isn't meant to be sarcastic or stupid, but the hardest situation to survive for me is where you're in one of those meetings where somebody loves the sound of their own voice. They're not trying to get anything done. They're just trying to burn time and, and opine. I, I really struggle with those. And it's those sorts of modern day scenarios where I have to employ all of those skills because I find those more challenging than being in any wilderness. When you're surrounded by people who aren't necessarily creating or helping but are criticising, that's difficult. And I know that it's been proven by an American university that a negative person will knock four of your happy tokens out of your hands and being chatting to someone positive like you puts two back in. So you've got to be really careful how many negative people you hang around with. So that's the times when I'll do the things like Lish, to try and make myself feel happier and I'll have to employ caffeine to get through it because they're really, really hard psychologically if you're stuck with a load of moaning people because it can unzip a situation. So I think anywhere outdoorsy, I'd be happy as long as I'm with the right people or I'm a Jack Jones. The hardest place for me to survive in, mate, is 
ongoing, endless meetings. I hate them. Yeah, and I think a lot of people would relate to that, and that's a great way to wrap this podcast up. I do think as well a lot of people, the vast majority of people, particularly over here in, in the Western society or the Western world, you could say, they are literally surviving every single day surviving email to email meeting to meeting moment to moment but it's just survival in a different way than maybe what we've been talking about however it all relates round and it all comes full circle but i do truly believe if we can put into practice a lot of the steps and a lot of the tips and hacks that you've spoken about today but also the ones that you mentioned in your book we can really take ourselves away from surviving to thriving and i know that sounds a little bit cliche or a little bit cheesy but they're cliches for a reason yeah definitely exactly yeah make it normal enjoy it awesome where can the listeners go then john to find out more about you where can they go to get your book and get all of the information on you the book how to survive is coming out in the u.s on the 5th of january so it's a brand new american edition and if the, if people were interested in that then my website is johnhudsonsurvival.com uh, H-U-D-S-O-N, John Hudson, J-O-H-N, HudsonSurvival.com. Love it. Amazing, mate. Awesome. Okay, we always round out this podcast or my podcast with a favorite quote. This can be something that you live by or it can be a quote of your own. Just leave us with a quote, please, John, to end the show. I can, mate. And I think it's appropriate for what we've spoken about. It's sometimes this one gets attributed to Winston Churchill, but I've dug into it and it, apparently nobody knows, which is even nicer. So if you're, going, if you're going through hell, keep going. Thank you, John. That was amazing. I loved it. Thank you so much for sharing your time. I know the listeners are going to love this one as well. Oh, good. I hope so. And thanks very much for asking me on, mate. I've really enjoyed chatting. My pleasure. I wish you all the best and all the success, mate, for the future. And you. Thanks, man. That's a wrap on another episode of the Kinetic Fitness Show. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast episode with your friends, family, and colleagues. Until next time, peace and love.